Hi, welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. On the Eater Upsell, every single week, I, Helen Rosner, and my co-host, Greg Morabito, talk to some of the world's coolest, smartest, most creative people about food. And on today's podcast, we are talking with Brian Koppelman, who you may know as a screenwriter, you may know as a podcast host, he hosts The Moment with Brian Koppelman, or you probably know him right now as one of the producers of and the showrunner for Billions, a totally addictive show on Showtime that I'm completely obsessed with, and not just because I binge watched it in order to prep for this interview. On Billions, among other things... There are billionaires fighting with the U.S. attorney. There are lots of rich people doing rich people things, but they do a lot of them in restaurants. And particularly, they do a lot of them in real, actual New York City restaurants. And that's not an accident. It's because Brian Koppelman is obsessed with food. In fact, David Chang, a previous Eater Upsell guest, has called him one of the patron saints of New York dining. You're going to love this conversation. I love this conversation. Greg loved this conversation. We also have a very special guest, question asker for our lightning round, another Vox Media Podcast Network host, Peter Kafka of Recode Media, who is a big Brian Koppelman fan. But first, before we get to that, Greg, I understand you want to ask me something about Twitter? You had a really great Twitter thread this week uh, that was based off of uh, a, a piece that our colleague Bill Addison wrote. Now I haven't talked with you about this, so I kind of wanted to. No, but I I'm so glad you brought okay. it up because I I was I have I yes let's. Okay, so the crux of it is that our our roving critic Bill Addison wrote this piece for Eater this week called "The Fastest Way to Ruin a Thousand Dollar Dinner," and it was about his experience at uh, Noma uh, in Tulum, Mexico, the little pop up they did there where. There was a storm, and the team really handled it really well and made it this great adventure uh, versus this experience he had at Single Thread, which is this wildly expensive restaurant uh, up in the Napa Valley or just a little bit north of the Napa Valley, where part of the part of the meal, one of the first courses, involved being on this hot roof in 90-degree weather with no shade, and he and his dining companion just hated it, and they really didn't fix the problem, and they brought them downstairs to where it was really stuffy, and it was just the worst way to start a meal. And he asked in this in this article, he said, am I the only one who winds up feeling guilty or shamed when I have a bad service experience at a fancy meal? It's true, right? Like, he made this really great point that he— you know, Noma Tulum is also an insanely expensive, like, destination restaurant experience. And on both sides of the coin, they had weather instances that they can't control. And in one scenario, the team was, like, empowered to deal with it. And they were like, this is a thing that's happening, and we're going to take care of you. And he felt taken care of. And on the other side, he he wrote something like, I don't remember his exact phrase, but it was something like the staff was almost willing the guest not to notice that it was 90 degrees and not a cloud of the sky. And they were baking on the rooftop in fancy clothes. Right. Yeah. So it's like like responding by incorporating the act of God into the dining experience versus responding by like pretending nothing. Is yeah, wrong. it's very uh, I really think that not to toot the horn of one of our uh, you know colleagues here, but I think Bill did a really great job of uh outlining a, a real point of tension in that sort of scenario and in a real high fine high-end dining scenario that I just think a lot of people don't talk about but you had a, you have a lot of thoughts on this subject I did yeah well I mean look I mean first of all being able to eat a thousand dollar dinner and is is like that's rare air you know like yes it's I think it's it's awesome that we're talking about this before we're talking to Brian Koppelman about his show about hedge fund billionaires because like that's the universe that we're talking right. about. A lot of the seats in this sort of restaurant are taken up by folks who have a huge amount of disposable income. But the thing that Bill was talking about in his article and then the thing that I started sort of riffing on on Twitter is I think the really important thing, which is kind of in two parts, for the most part, every guest at a super crazy high-end restaurant is probably only going once. You know, like especially if it's somewhere like Single Thread that builds itself as like an immersive package experience. Like you stay in their hotel. It's a whole like 24 or 48 hour experience. You can also get breakfast there. There are a lot of places like this, right? Like the Willow's Inn or Blackberry Farm or the Inn at Little Washington. But even if you're in New York or San Francisco and you're just like going to Saison or you're just going to Per Se, like that's not your regular Thursday night dinner. The restaurant basically has one bullet. 
like you get it right with this diner or you don't get it right with this diner. And I think Bill was trying to say that when you don't get it right, it feels terrible. Like it feels terrible as the diner to be like, I'm spending so much money and things are wrong and I can tell they're wrong. And I like it's this weird disempowerment. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the way that you feel as an active participant in that meal is really important because I, I see like, you know, there's kind of two main reasons you go to a, a, a meal that's very expensive and a lofty like that. And one is, you know, maybe you'll get some inspiration. Maybe you'll help see food or dining or culture in a slightly different light. But also number two is that, you know, people pay a lot of money to have these memories of like perfect nights or spectacular occasions. And, you know, I think that if you have the money, you can save up and and go and take that voyage and that journey. And if it'll supply you with enough warm, fuzzy memories or just a great experience you can keep drawing back from, then it'll, it'll really pay for itself over time, you know? I love that way of thinking about it, like what you're paying for is a perfect night. I didn't, I, I've never quite crystallized it that way, and I think you've totally nailed it. And it it helps contextualize the sort of competing expectations. Oh, totally. And one thing I, I thought of while reading both Bill's article and your thread was, you know, if you go to a super fancy restaurant, one thing that I, I always like uh, pick up on is like when they, oh, that there's four people at the table and they drop all the plates at the same time or like, Four people come to like crumb your table at once and it's like this ballet or whatever. Love it. And yes. so that's cool. But the most important thing and that the mem- the moments I tend to remember are when you make some sort of connection with the servers or, you know, when you just they made you feel good. You know, I mean, not like like by kissing your ass or anything, just like you felt like you connected with the restaurant in some way. And that usually to me is not because they dropped the plates at the same time or, you know, not because the the glass was super sparkly or, you know, whatever sort of uh, mechanical things that the restaurant can do. It's just really about the way that you treat people. And I think, you know, Bill's point at the end of this whole story was, I think, like a really amazing one, which was that his memories of most of his meals come down to what went wrong, not because he's looking for reasons to complain, but because it's the moments when things go wrong that he could really watch the restaurant either salvage it or fail to salvage it. Like these crises are, I mean, it's a cliche, but you know, like the crisis is an opportunity. I mean, maybe, maybe this will come off as sort of an obnoxious food writer thing, but I feel like, you know, these really high-end restaurants seem to be held accountable for this because I feel like a lot of people, there's an effect where they come in, they spend a lot of money and people are like kind of proud of the fact that they spent a lot of money and that might actually make them happy. Or like, you know, as you say, you know, Maybe they're intimidated or something like that, and and they won't think that, you know, something's wrong. The goal is to feel happy. You should feel happy as a guest. Like, beautiful listeners at home, like, Greg and I eat out all the time, and it's our job. So take it from us when we tell you that if you walk away from a restaurant and you don't feel terrific, it's not your fault. Yeah, well, you know, if you have any thoughts on on this discussion that we're having about service, either at the high end or the low end or like things that really uh, make a difference for you as a diner and uh, or, or any any reactions to this conversation we're having, you can always reach out to us at upsell at eater.com. We love emails from listeners and uh, and check out Bill's article. It's, you know, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but it's somewhere on eater.com. Check out Bill Addison and check out what he has to say. Yeah, about very, it. very relevant, and, as we mentioned, to this conversation that we're about to hear with uh, Brian Koppelman. Yeah, talking about spending tons of money. The guy who wrote a TV show about billionaires going to restaurants is coming up in just a second after this interstitial music, courtesy of AP Dan. Brian, welcome so much to the show. How are you doing today? Thrilled to be here. This is so fun. I think the moment when I realized, like, oh, man, I need to know everything about you was when David Chang posted about you on his Instagram um, you, you filmed a, a scene from the second season of Billions in Momofuku Co. And he called you one of the patron saints of NYC dining. Yeah, that was, I loved seeing that. That was so great. So sweet of him. Did you know that was coming? Do no. you think of yourself that way? No. Do you have like a novena no, candle I, I with think, your face on I it? I think if one thinks of oneself as a patron saint of anything, one is just the patron saint of douchebaggery <laughs> at that point. Um, so no, I definitely did not, do not think of myself that way. But I, I think what... I've known Dave a really long time, and I love him. And um, what I am is an enthusiast. When I love something, when I'm 
interested in something, I dive all the way in, and then I spread the word about it. I can't help myself um, because my whole life has been driven by these enthusiasms, fascinations, obsessions. And when I follow those things, uh, very often some kind of a positive result comes from it. I find myself uh, in great, deep, interesting relationships with people. I end up having some kind of professional side effect that's positive. And um, so, like, I went to Mamafuku when it first opened, I mean, two months after it opened, probably, and just told the world about this place. It was when only chefs were eating there really late at night. And I, a friend took me, and I said, like, oh, this was a chef I knew. He was like, um, there's this place, and we went. And it was the first summer, so maybe it was three months after they opened or whatever it was. They had just put the corn on the menu, the corn and bacon in the beginning, yeah. which they only did in the summers. It was back in 2004 or 2005. It was right when it, it, just, you know, it yeah. right when it opened. And um, I lost my mind. I had that pork bun and that corn, and I, I thought, oh, this is the best restaurant in New York, and nobody knows about it. And um, so I immediately started spreading the word, and that's the kind of thing that I— you know. And there was no—I wasn't tweeting about it, then there was on Twitter. I just— couldn't help myself. It wasn't conscious. When I, I, I just think um, when I love something, I just can't help but want to share about it. I think that's what Dave was talking about. So what form does spreading the word take for you? Well, now, I mean, I just um, I tweet too much. Yeah, same. I get Don't that. You? I yes. mean, that's what just happened. That's how we met, was yeah, tweeting too much at each other. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, how, did, how do you spread the word now about things? I mean, because we don't talk on the phone anymore. Back then, I probably called people. Yeah, these days, I feel like uh, with restaurants and stuff, do you, do you use Slack at all uh, in the showroom of Billions or anything? We do. So, but, but we're all, we all still work in the same yeah. set of offices. And we're all always, you know, if you're a writer, I mean, you're just always looking for a good place to eat or to order in from. So, I mean, if someone finds a good restaurant, that is big news in the writer's room. Oh, yeah. For sure. Right. And we're a writer's room. Our show is pretty obsessed with food. You know, um, uh, the show shows, itself yeah. the yeah is obsessed with food. And so all of us are always talking about restaurants all the time. But I mean, do, would you like, and we wouldn't, I don't think I would pick up the phone now. Something would have to be to, to call somebody um, but back then, I think that's what I would have done is called a bunch of my friends and said, do you know about this place, this guy, this Yeah. I mean, Greg and I have yeah. the luxury of working at a publication entirely dedicated to telling people yes. about the great new restaurant we found. But yeah, I don't know what I would even do. I guess I would tweet or post on Maybe Facebook Instagram, Instagram something. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram a dish or Twitter DMs, you know, like I feel like if you got a really good recommendation, you just you want to give it to the person that's going to be receptive to it. That's yes. how I feel, you know. But like back in the day when you were one of the co-discoverers of Momofuku, you really had to put that personal curatorial touch on the recommendation. You did. You had to really like um, make it a point. I think for my whole life, one of the ways that friendships were forged was by both recognizing something in a book or in a movie or wanting to quote the same line. Somehow those sort of connections about the things that hit us in a visceral place, the things that hit us both intellectually and emotionally are the, the, the sort of most permanent, in a, in a way, I, I, shared experiences are probably the most permanent, but just shy of that would be these kind of shared loves or reactions to the things that move us. And so the world, one of the great things about the connectivity of the world now is you can do that on a grand scale. You can you have the opportunity to share and then find kinship with people over social media. It's one of the joys for me of the podcast that I do is getting to make those connections and then seeing them resonate out in the world. I think there's a, a through line for me with a lot of your work, everything from rounders through billions, through what you do on your podcast where you talk to people about key moments in their creative and professional lives, where you're you're going behind the curtain of the reality of their world. So it's not talking about necessarily like the actual art or product that they're creating. It's finding the art within the practice of creating the art. I'm really interested in the prism through which people see the world. Uh, I've always been. And so that's a really good insight of yours. And that, uh, like I said, I lead with my curiosity. And so I do want to understand, you know, if I'm talking to Mario Batali or I'm talking to David Chang, I want to understand why they make the choices that they make. Um, I'm insanely in, interested in engaging with them about how they see the world and why they see the world that way. Um, but, because, uh, like, I think both those guys are geniuses, and that 
level of genius, I, I want to find clues about like how it happens. So why do you make the choice to have um, the narrative mechanism for sharing your findings with the world be something like television or movies instead of more of a journalistic direction? Oh, I love thinking about this. I mean, I, I've long thought, clearly, like journalism was an alternate career path for me. Um, but I love telling stories. I mean, I like using this stuff as fuel to tell stories professionally. Movies and books, novels, were the th and music were the things that got me through any rough patch of my childhood. And I think we come back to those things and we connect with them in certain ways. And so th that just became the form of expression that made sense to me. You know, I get to do this work with my lifelong best friend, David Levine, and the two of us met by, like, we both loved talking about this stuff. And um, I've done a lot of journalism. You know, I, I wrote for Grantland for the whole time Grantland existed, and um, I've written for Sports Illustrated, and I, I mean, I've written for tons of magazines and papers. But I, and I love having that as an outlet. I love being able to express myself in that way. But for me, the the thing that happens to me when I'm writing and making something is that's how if that you know if the truest expression a chef has is when they're actually in there doing that thing for me when I'm creating is when I get to that kind of alpha state or whatever you call it when I'm in the world of writing scenes for these people to say you know words for these people to say or we're shooting it or editing it I'm in that state of hyper presence but also the dreamlike place that if you're lucky enough to be able to work as an artist you get to achieve sometimes chasing that. So that's the biggest high. Like there's, you know, you know, um, almost nothing that feels like that feels. So that's why if I'm, I'm led by this emotional, if I'm led by wanting, um, these triggers, th these kind of endorphins that I, uh, I get the most of those things when I'm doing that work. So is eating out and continuing to go to restaurants and stuff, it's more than just like the food and the, whatever that does to your brain. It's like, the stories and being around other creative people is that the, the connection? Hundred percent. Yeah, it's all. I mean, it's all. It's all of it, and it's all. Um, and and um, what one would call like the high and low. Look, I mean, I love reading. We were talking last night. Um, I went out with Adam Platt last night, which is a great thing to. I know you guys have both done that. I'm sure it's a great thing to go when he's tasting food. Eating out with a restaurant critic is it's is so much fun. Yeah, and and we were talking about all this about all this stuff and about sort of like um the story of why people are doing what they're doing when they're um putting food on the table for you and i like everything about what that is and what that feels like um but i feel the same way you know, if i find a, a great pizza place i'm literally you know i could i could ask i, I could try to get to the bottom of why prince street pizzas pepperoni slice is so much better than any other pepperoni slice. And I want to ask a hundred people and I want to watch them making it. I'm just so interested in trying to figure that out. So that's a, that's a great segue into talking about billions because the, the, is it the opening scene of the very first episode of the show? It's the is, second scene. The second scene is. The opening a, scene is a very cr crazy scene oh, to yes, open sorry, a show, by you're the way, right. I gotta say. The and that cold is a great open scene. involves Thanks. things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the second scene involves a very classic sort of New York, New York slice joint and a character who is pretty instantly revealed to be basically one of the most powerful, wealthy people in the entire world, finding intense pleasure in the manifestation of his childhood memories through this slice of pizza. And almost instantly, it becomes clear that throughout this show, food is going to be used as a plot device and a characterization element totally. and a, a way to tell us who we are. That seems very much in sync to me with the role that food now plays in the world as a cultural identifier. Dave and I definitely think so. I mean, we all these choices are conscious choices. And um, that scene came out of a conversation in the writer's room about how to connect with who Axe really is as a person separate from who he is in business. And this conversation started about what, what's your chi favorite childhood pizza place. And everybody, it's what a 
what a democratizing thing, your favorite childhood pizza. Uh, it's it uh, it nobody is like richer or poor. You're having that conversation. Everyone's on equal footing, and everyone's equally passionate about it. And it and it does that 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 for New Yorkers especially, I think, but I think for Chicagoans too, and Detroiters, like you know, every all over the place, people will say, um, will have a, a reason why they're. Um, though we have a new writer in the room this year from Nebraska, and mm-hmm. uh, I was like, "So you must also." He said, "No, man, it's just terrible." That's yeah, <laughs> not, re- no, not really a pizza culture. He just said it's just bad. One thing I'm curious about, Brian, is that uh, you know, in your past, you you have this you know previous career as a music industry guy, and a few people that have worked in the industry that I've talked to, one of them being Ken Friedman, who I know you I know, love is Ken. an acquaintance of yours are like obsessed with restaurants. And I'm just kind of curious, why, why is, what is that connection between people that work in the restaurant industry and like knowing a ton about restaurants? Or is it just, they got to take, I mean, everyone has to take people out to, to lunch sometimes, you know? I, I mean, I just think the culture we live in now, restaurants have this huge food, look, food is a necessity, right? So I know you guys think about this a lot and think about it broadly and at the micro level, but, um, Obviously, food is the essential thing, right? So, food and water, and so it, I mean, it just makes sense. Look, music people are out at night a lot. I mean, to answer that question in a direct way, a huge part of the job of being in the music business is being out at night, seeing bands and artists perform. And so, a lot of the time, you'll finish your day of work, and then you'll have to wait till ten at night to see a band. So, what are you going to do for that hour and a half? I became a degenerate poker player, but mostly with people. <laughs> so I would just go play poker. But what most people do is they go out and eat. But Ken is look. Ken Ken Friedman was all born to be somebody who would all, he always had you know an eye for the next great thing, and he was born to be the best front of house person in the world. So no surprise to me where Ken. Uh, ended up. I I think the way that I would the the thing that ties the music my music career was that this idea of discovery. But that was my job in the music business. That's how I got into it was by being able to discover talent before other people found it. And I think that that ties into why I can stumble into a pizza place. It's like I've just you want to try the new thing and figure out if it's good or not. You're, I'm constantly trying to. I can't help. It. I can't turn it off. It's not even I try to. You know it's you're walking around and you're just um, comparing all the time. Is this good? Is it great? What's its essential nature? I want to say that's like, seems like it's a through line in your career, maybe finding sort of the talent and kind of the next big thing before it happens. Like with Rounders, I mean, I don't know if this was some conscious thing when you guys were were writing that movie, thinking, you know, poker's on the cusp, it's going to get big, but it certainly exploded after that movie, I feel like, you know? Thanks, yeah. I mean, I just know I stumbled into a poker club and loved it. That's that idea of like... You know, following whatever it is, this thing I call like enthusiasms or fascination, and just being diving all the way into it. And so that was an example. You know, I walked into a poker club and immediately knew it was a movie called Dave and was like, I know the movie we should write. And that, there was no doubt in my mind um, about it. I could be wrong. I've been wrong a lot in my life. I'm always wrong, but you only have to be right occasionally. So now with billions, are you seeing like an explosion of people wanting to go work in the U.S. Attorney's Office? That's funny. I mean, yeah, who knows? I mean, that I'm, I'll say I'm never calculating. Yeah. So to answer that question, no part of this ever involves calculation. It's always just about um, trying to actually do the opposite of calculating, trying to turn that um, conscious critical faculty off for as long as I can. Eventually, you have to apply it because you have to apply rigor. But I want to be really free in the whole beginning of all of it, the ideation phase, the discovery phase. I, I want to be as free as I can writing a first draft. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then you have to apply critical faculty to it. Then you have to apply rigor. Then you have to apply the conscious mind to it. But I'm never, ever calculating Oh, do I think this will be successful? Oh, do I think this will be? I didn't. I wasn't like, oh, Prince Street Pizza is going to be a bit famous, or that David <laughs> Chang is going to be. It was more just like, holy shit, this is amazing. It's totally an emotional response first, all the time. That I'm in. look. I'm, I met my wife. We were very young. The moment I saw her, I was like, this is the person I'm going to spend my life with. And there, uh, we've been married for 25 years, and um, the ha- I have to be the happiest married person that you know. And that's like, and you can't calculate that stuff. You, that's pure luck to be 25 and get married and be 51 and, you know, still married. That's true. 
That's beautiful. And happy in it. So like that stuff, um, it's how we are with our kids, which is just trying to be loving and conscious and intentional without overly applying critical faculties. So we talked a little bit about the way food on the low end is used to communicate on the show. But if you watch the decisions that characters are making in yeah. terms of high-end restaurants, I think it's it's completely possible to watch Billions and not know a damn thing about New York City or the restaurant world and understand exactly what's going on and who the characters are and what they're doing. But if you have an obsessive awareness of certain restaurants and what they signal and what kind of people they draw you can do a whole metatextual analysis. Like, there is a certain type of person who goes to dinner at Maria. There's a certain type of person who, if they're going to eat at a tasting counter, goes to Co instead of to Blanca or to Aterra. Are you choosing these for complex reasons? Like, Well, yeah, we're totally aware. So once you're endeavoring to make something, then you better be applying a tremendous amount of rigor, thought, critical faculty, all that stuff to it. So... We're hyper aware of the semiotics, uh, and so that people who under people who are interested in that stuff will understand it. But also, you actually don't need, as you said. So Bobby Axelrod's alone at Co. So and Dave Chang himself is cooking for him. So what is that? You know, that it tells us there's a lot, a lot of right? stuff that that can tell you about how the New York food world works, what Bobby Axelrod's place in New York City is, what he's trying to show the guy that he's taking to dinner what it says about somebody like David Chang being willing to do that, not being willing to do it in the show, right? That's right. the meta thing maybe you can apply to it. But <laughs> there's all this stuff that's going on there so that's available that. for the audience if the audience is interested in it. So let's unpack that a little. So let's say, what, what does a person have to be to be cooked for personally by David Chang at Co? Well, you know— um, who owns Shuko? Right. right let me, like, let me just ask you that question. Right. Who it's, owns Shuko? You know who owns Shuko. Do I? Oh, it's, it's that it's guy. It's Lucy, Lucy Liu's husband, right? Oh, the— It's a billionaire. Right. Who owns it? Yeah. I, I don't want to say his name if it's not something that's public knowledge. But, but Shuko, uh, Shuko's in—okay. Um, Shuko's so. not in the show, but, but um, that guy who owns that restaurant is also a partner in another really famous restaurant in the city, one of the most famous restaurants in the city, and one of the best restaurants in the world, maybe the best— uh, according to a lot of people. And okay. Big money guy, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, that kind of a person, I think, could have somebody like David Chang cooking for them. Sure. Also, there's a lot of mutuality of benefit in the city among chefs and the very wealthy. Yep. They're, they're, uh, if you, you guys know a lot of restaurateurs, they're always looking for the person who's going to—I mean, not not the people who are successful as David or— No, I mean, or, we're, we're going to—to um, like, be clear, we're talking about this— in General, the fictional really universe, in the fictional right. universe, but like, but but in the in the real universe, um, I don't know many restaurateurs or chefs who wouldn't want to know um, a billionaire who's obsessed with food. I they, that's a I unicorn. believe they would that's, all right. That's yeah. exactly right. Why wouldn't they want that? That person could turn them into the Shake Shack right. potentially. So if you're if you're a restaurant obsessive and you're watching the show and you see, okay, David Chang personally is cooking for him at the counter at Co. You know right away that either he has a financial stake in the restaurant, or maybe he owns the building that the restaurant is in, or there's some yeah, or, or, massive or, and in, intimate connection between or, him, you know, the, or he's being or courted. The world that those two people live in is such that the two of them maybe met at somebody else's table one night and developed some sort of relationship, and maybe that guy gave a chef his plane to use for a weekend, and the chef said, anytime you want... There's, you know, any of that stuff could have happened that result in um, the guy sitting there alone at Co. Yeah. And so you wind up with, if you are sufficiently fluent in the incredibly draconian politics of the restaurant world, able to access an entire additional layer of characterization. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, look, um, the Nakazawa scene, which I think you're in season one of our show, but in season two, there's a scene that the, the thing that made many food people in New York write to us and thank us was this <laughs> there's a scene in season two at Nakazawa where some uh, someone is putting ginger on the fish. Which is like which no is, man. You know like they're instead of eating ginger in between they're putting ginger on the on the sushi there itself. There are so many YouTube it videos telling verboten. you not to do that. Like, <laughs> And so one of the characters yeah. in the show reacts very poorly to seeing somebody else do that. And um, 
that too, if you're somebody who's like aware of the, what a, a bunch of stuff means, and like what that's it just totally to get fun a seat to watch. At the bar at Nakazawa. I mean, like the the value of simply being there. And well, then so to... the character in Billion says, um, it's Wags says to the person eating that, uh, he points to the chef at Nakazawa, and he says, um, it took him ten years to learn how to make the egg, the egg, the tamago, which is a tamago, reference to Jiro yeah. Dreams of Sushi, which where Nakazawa right. was. So that's. If you're watching the show and you don't know that stuff, it's still great to see a guy freak out that someone's eating sushi wrong, and then you don't know, is this guy the asshole or is that guy the asshole? But if you know the backstory, it's really clear who the asshole is. Because putting ginger on your Nakazawa sushi is like ordering a, a Wagyu steak well done. I mean, it's 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 philistinism. It's like yeah, Donald it's, Trump would do it. Uh, yeah. It's the kind of yeah. thing Trump would do. Just be like, fuck and this, I would. want ginger I mean, yeah. actually, Trump would make you cook the sushi first. Oh, yeah, he doesn't eat raw fish. He's not going to eat the raw fish. I don't eat the fish at all. He'd get a Wagyu sushi and have it well done. And That's then not right. eat the rice. And put ketchup on it. One thing I find really awesome, like if you're watching Billions and you notice that there is a tense, powerful scene at Keen's or Nakazawa and that kind of a thing, it kind of just reminds me of like, you know, if you look at a really great original soundtrack for a movie, you know, and you look at how the music is used and you know anything about the music and you can figure out, oh, that's a it's that's a thematic reference or something or it's used for a specific reason. I mean, it seems like I love that our, our cultural literacy around dining is now reflected on screen. You know, there's not just a random restaurant. It's not just a set, you know, on a soundstage. It's. These are these real places that have real meaning. Well, yeah, I'm glad that it hits you that way. It's certainly intended. Uh, it makes you know makes Dave and me really happy to to hear that people are picking up on all that stuff. Our sponsor today is ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Maybe you should consider ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. Now, one more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat like eater. Hey, Eater Upsell listeners, this is Todd Vandorf. I'd love for you to check out my podcast, I Think You're Interesting. It's a weekly conversation with the most interesting people shaping arts and entertainment, culture, media, all that stuff. You could start with the episode featuring myself and some of my favorite film critics discussing the best summer movies of the 21st century. Check that episode and others out and leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So how much are you scouting when you eat? Can you turn it off? No. No, I mean, you're always aware of it. I'm always thinking about it constantly. You think about the, I think about the show 20 hours a day. I mean, other, I mean, I, all the time, you know, maybe there are four hours from asleep and not dreaming or something. But the show takes you over. You immerse, As you start writing each season, you just become fully, you know, you start, it's like swimming. And, but, but by, you know, by this point, which is we're six or seven weeks out from shooting, from beginning to shoot the, this um, next season, I'm just swimming in it. You probably can't talk about the restaurants, but do you have them lined up? Do you have some places you know are going to appear on screen? Mm-hmm. Season three? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. He said he, he nods uh-huh. and looks away from the microphone. Yeah. All right. Well, so so what is semiotically exciting about a restaurant? Like, what would make you think, all right, this place adds characterization to a story that I'm trying to sell? Yes. Well, it's it's probably not only the semiotics of, uh, like, the visual, traditional, right, semiotics, meaning um, just what the... Uh, images themselves are, are telling us, but it's, as you said, the mimetic levels that you can go to. So, uh, actually, I, I think that that, that, um, that probably gets us into a place where I'm more comfortable having someone else talk about it than I am. I think we put it out there, and I'd, I, it, I'm more happy with, with you, you guys talking about how it hits you than, than, than for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of it from a different place. As I say, I'm aware of that stuff, but what I'm really trying to do is figure out where Bobby Axelrod would go or where Chuck Rhodes would go. That's most important in those decisions is Dave and me thinking about 
Where would he go? Why would he want to go there? Then making sure the rest of the stuff can land also. Um, and sometimes it's practical. You know, it's really, it would be really hard to shoot in Shuko, which is my favorite sushi place in the city. That and Sasabune are my favorites. Sasabune is not that distinctive looking, and Shuko is very small. So it would be hard to shoot in those places. Not because that was perfect, because of the backstory. But you're thinking about all that stuff. You, right, you're thinking, what, can we get the cameras in here? Um, first, you're thinking what the idealized version of the play thing would be, and then you're thinking about can, how do we practically do it. Something that I think is a, 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 a not infrequent line of conversation in our eater slack rooms and in the office is, I'm trying to think of the right way to articulate this, but I actually think that imposing this onto fictional characters is probably the right way to do it. There are restaurants that give every impression of being interesting and relevant and zeitgeisty and the kind of place where you want to go and drop a couple hundred dollars for dinner with your friends, but they don't actually have the true core at their soul. And then there are restaurants that actually have it. And there is such a subtle characterization. I think like the way I've always thought of it, knowing a lot of people who work in finance, is that there are restaurants that analysts go to, and then there are restaurants that partners go to. Uh, oh, sure. Um, I love that as a like way to look at it, that there are... And I mean, well, this a lot of what you're talking about is what's the real right? thing. Yeah, I know. I understand exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I don't want to go to eat any of those places. But for instance, it was really important to us to put Babo in season one and have that be a place Chuck would go to. Chuck and Wendy go to Babo. Because he grew up in New York. He knows it. He yep. knows, like, he's not trying to be, he's not trying to sort of pretend to anything. He's just going to go to this place that he knows is great. Because if he has to suffer through dinner with these people, at least the dinner is going to be really good. Um, <laughs> right. It's a and constant. I also, we wanted ba what Babo represents, uh, what it feels like to be in that restaurant. And I also felt, that w so after all that stuff, the idea that if, if Mario would let us shoot in Babo, it also sends a signal to other people to let us shoot in their places. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's operating on several levels at no once. No one's shot in Babo. Yeah. Well, you know, our, our critic, Ryan Sutton, writes um, frequently about steakhouses. And we find—I mean, he, he covers the, the breadth of, of the New York restaurant scene, but we find that when he writes about steakhouses, we get a very particular type of reader. I mean, not that we do insane demographic oh, I'm fascinated digging, by this, really? But, well, you know, I, I sort of obsessively track, like, who's tweeting about our stories, who's Facebooking our stories. And you get a lot of young guys who work in finance getting super psyched about steakhouses. Worked up if it's good or bad? Like, will they res will they send you? No, you know, they just, they're, they're, they How do you know they're reading lot. it? They'll be sharing it on Facebook. They'll be sharing it on Twitter. There'll be a lot of like, oh, dude, like, we got to check this place out. And even if, I I'm thinking of a particular review he gave, maybe even two years ago, of a, uh, he kind of dragged one of the new steakhouses. And he dragged it within a context of being a new steakhouse that was specifically trying to market itself basically to young analysts who just got their first bonus and wanted to Which steakhouse go, was it? Uh, oh, you guys wrote about it. Say the steakhouse. I just, was it, it was Quality Eats, wasn't Quality it? Quality Eats, yeah. right? Which is like the old steakhouse family, the, the Stillmans, you know, being like the Smith & Trying to start a, well, and I, it reads to me and it crew. read to Is Ryan that the one on, in, on like 14th or No, it's on or? Greenwich. I just on Greenwich Avenue. It's okay, yeah, I walked by it recently. Yeah. I've never been there. So it, it's a restaurant that I think particularly particularly when it opened, was extremely specifically, as to my read and also to Ryan's, marketing itself to an associate who just got a bonus. Great. It was like, you know what? Come here. Spend more money than you should. Feel like a cool guy. And like, I have to go there now. Orbit. Now I have to go. I have to see it. With <laughs> and it's description like, it's for like the show. loud and it's like mostly a bar and it's loud, but it's steaks and, and it's you like know, not that $14 good. sunchokes. And, and yeah, it's but, okay. but it has it has enough surface level signifier of this is where you go if you're a young baller in New York City without having the Nakazawa core. I mean, not that everything could be Nakazawa, though Nakazawa is now an interesting political hot water. But um, yes. we can go into that later on. But I think like these these multi-layered semantics of the way New York in particular as a, as a finance city has the ebbs and flows of its yes. restaurants. But I also look at hedge fund people. Dave and I look at hedge fund people slightly differently than the typical Wall Street associate partner conversation. It's not the iBankers. Because, yeah, because hedge fund people, one of the things they value about themselves and one of the stories that they tell themselves is that they aren't susceptible to the herd. 
mentality <laughs> and that they can divine that which has true value from that which has faux value. And so they though that choice is expressed in their choice of restaurant also, which is why Wags knows that Nakazawa is great. He's not in Nakazawa um, because he uh, has uh, heard he's supposed to like it. He speaks Japanese in the scene, and he's uh, he loves it, and he appreciates what at it, what is at the center of what makes it great. He has edge for he restaurants. Ha- he does. He wants to always. They all want to have edge, and so they're aware of it. And that, that so that is also important to us. It's it's look. Bobby Axford will also eat White Castle. I want to talk and, to you about this. <laughs> yes, I fact checked your White Castle. So in the first episode, he eats White Castle at his desk at his office in Greenwich. The closest in Westport. White Castle, oh, his sorry, office Westport. in Westport. The closest White Castle to Westport is in the Bronx. The closest heliport to the White Castle in the Bronx is outside of the congeal radius for White Castle. That's funny. I love it. I literally it. looked this up. Radius. I spent like an yeah. hour on. Well, you don't Google know Maps when, the, when it was heated out. up, though. Well, no, but so you think he has like a. F- like a White Castle in the basement. I mean, he the... also in this first season sends to Philadelphia for the three best cheesesteaks. But cheesesteaks, I think, can transport well, much fact, better than White Well, in fact, you can make the argument that can. the congelation is positive for the cheesesteaks. Great. <laughs> one could make that <laughs> oh argument. It's the carbonara effect, right? Like, it starts forming yeah. a sauce. I don't know if they do DVD, like, um, <laughs> like uh, tracks, like, uh, what, what were those called? Like, the extras. Like the commentary. Yeah, the bonus but track. Commentary. I would love to have, yeah, you guys just, like, <laughs> narrating over the, the episodes about whether or not the how realistic the cheesesteaks and the White Castle. Well, I, was watching I will movie. say we, yeah, that, we, we were really careful about not having the White Castle on like a nice plate or anything like Though that. So he uses a cloth napkin. Yeah, he does. Which says so much about his character. We were just very careful about how that would all happen in that moment. I, we were very I, conscious of it. I, I, I liked that scene a lot. <laughs> All right, cool. Cool. Well, we have reached the lightning round portion of our show, but I want to talk about White Castle forever. Today's lightning round special guest question asker is... Can you hear me? Yeah. That guy. Testing his mic. Okay, we're testing. Peter Kafka. Hi, Brian. Hey, man. Hey, Greg. Hey, Helen. Hi. Peter Kafka is the host of another Vox Media Podcast Network podcast that you should all be listening to, Recode Media with Peter Kafka, where he talks with also super interesting I tried to get Brian on this one. He likes us more. But he's busy. So well, now had, I got him here. Yeah. We're here. Yeah, and he was busy doing this podcast. I was, yeah, I was otherwise occupied trying to look up the word melodrama and how you <laughs> define my show that way, I think. Uh, we could talk about Twitter trolling in a second. Here, so should we just jump into it? What's yeah, the, so, what's so the you've word? got a bunch of lightning round questions for Brian. That and I have been told will. that Peter's one of the great guys in the world by one of the great guys in the world, Jonathan Prince. So I'm happy to. Oh, we'll make it, we'll make it good here. So we'll, we'll start with a related thing here. Are you a big Wilco fan or the biggest Wilco fan? I'm a Sunvolt fan. Oh, deep cut. Hey, this is AP Dan, your friendly neighborhood upsell producer. We're going to take a quick break from this very tense lightning round because I had no idea what these guys were talking about. So I got Hells to explain it. It turns out this argument started on Twitter when Peter Kafka said, At Peter Kafka. Billions may be a broad melodrama, but the scene where the bro mansplains about Jeff Tweedy, Jay Bennett, and Wilco was very specific stuff. And Brian Koppelman responded, At Brian Koppelman. That was a woman. Only women in that scene. But thanks for watching, friend of my friend Jonathan Prince. And here's the significance. Peter Kafka and Brian Koppelman are both dudes who are obsessed with music. Peter Kafka watched a scene on Billions where one character explains to the other what's up with Wilco, Jeff Tweedy, and Jay Bennett, who used to be in a band together before Jeff Tweedy formed Wilco. It's all very complicated. The internet has a lot of feelings about it. You can look it up. The important thing, though, is that Peter Kaffa called what one character did to the other about this mansplaining. And Brian Koppelman jumped in to point out that it was actually a woman talking to another woman. And he very adorably and sarcastically said, thanks for watching, which is the best thing for a creator to say to a fan who gets something wrong. And now we have both of them together in the same room facing each other down, and I am dying of happiness. Thanks, Hells. So now with all that helpful background info, let's get back to the lightning round. Yeah. Oh, but I'm also a big Wilco fan. I love Wilco. Um, uh, uh, Jeff Tweedy's fucking brilliant. Uh, Jay Bennett was, uh, I think, really, uh, and it really was like the activating ingredient to bring Tweedy's full genius to the fore after Jay Farrar left the group. And um, well, after he and Jay, Jay Farrar split in Tupelo. And for me, Jay Farrar gets to a sadder, deeper place more often than Jeff Tweedy so does. So the context here is there's a very deep dialogue cut. 
in the second season about Jay Bennett, who is a now deceased member of Wilco, former member of Wilco, and his relationship with Jeff Tweedy, who's the guy everyone knows who knows. If you know Wilco a little bit, you know who Jeff Tweedy is. Clearly, when you watch that show, you realize, oh, you and your partner are, are deep, deep Wilco Yes, guys. but you made the most inexact tweet of I all time so, yeah, about yeah, yeah. the show. We you said jump, that the it. person mansplained, but it was a woman. Yeah. It women? was two women, women talking. Women can mansplain. No, that was no. You can't defend your are man you defi- here. Are you, are you correcting me on the you definition can't. of mansplaining? That's funny, <laughs> but I'm correcting Peter on him trying to say the bro. He said the bro mansplained or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no way you can call Maggie Sips Wendy uh, Rhodes a man. So I was one wrong. Yeah. Which, which, which I, I Peter you called me on admitting it. Admitting that he's wrong on um, the Europe cell. It's one why you shouldn't tweet late at night or early in the morning or ever when you've been up late at night. Yeah, no, you just have to own the tweet. It's yeah. fine. It's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I just I got it wrong. But you said so. Sun Volt, not Wilco, which is like that is it just that, that is that the deeper. most Wilco fan answer you can That's give hilarious. to the question that Peter just asked. That's you hilarious. Too. He, got like, he didn't even miss a beat. Like it was like <laughs> like not even a, a second between that the question. Was, and that the was that was like Buddhist monk level. Like unask the question and also destroy your. Well, soul. I was just trying to get to the answer. So let's see where he was going. I, I got other, I have other music questions. I want to skip ahead yeah, to Twitter. How do you how do you deal with with trolls besides Peter Kafka? Because you are I a prolific love, Twitter. I love it. Twitterer. I have no. Um, no issue. It was just the timing of that was funny because that tweet, the the Wilco, th- what was hilarious, right? Sometimes you do know. So, like, we knew that there were Wilco fans would freak out in anger that we would dare uh, say in the show that, first of all, we, like, call Tweety a genius, and we just say that his best work was with Jay Bennett. And was, we knew that a would be ago. enough yeah. to make Wilco fans go ape. So you were intentionally hap- trolling no, by no, no. way of the show. No, but I knew that it would happen. That's trolling. Willing to do it. That is trolling. That's an that interesting is, definition. I'm, no. I'm, I'm willing to do yeah. it. Uh, it's, no, because it's a truly <laughs> held belief, so it wasn't trolling. I still think that's trolling. Truly held belief. It's, it's also correct. None of this. You are correct. Is right. So that's the, none of this. Like obvious, the fact that it's. I respect it. I mean, I don't do think. Do you think it's trolling? trolling? I, I don't actually. I don't think it's. Well, I think I trolling is inauthentic. By no, its trolling nature. is what I did to Brian on Twitter the next day. I think trolling is inauthentic. I think trolling has no because I think you probably believed at the time that like it was um, just tossed off or whatever. But, but but I said something about your show and I cc'd you so you could see it. That's yes, trolling. That's trolling. Right? But I think trolling also has a nature. Uh, uh, your uh, the intention is to get a rise. The intention in that scene was to use the point about Jay Bennett to make a point about the characters. Okay. I had no idea when writing it or shooting it. But then when we finished the episodes, some people watched them throughout the process, and I started getting questions from people about the Wilco thing, and I was like, "Oh, landmine!" And then you know you have a choice. Is the Dave and I have a choice always? The showrunners, creators, to edit something, take it out, but. We were like, no, no, this is what these people would talk about. They have this piece of knowledge. This woman says this thing. Um, and it's not even Wendy who says it, right? It's the astronaut it's who the says astronaut. it. It's this young woman explaining to the older person uh, their take on, on this. I love how this whole conversation must sound to someone who has no familiarity with the show or with the they band. Can, there's a 15-second skip part. They yeah, can go right. Yeah. The so, astronaut. So no. when someone trolls you on Twitter— how, what's what's Often what's your I quote tweet and say thanks for watching? Oh, that, I'll do that all the time. Nice. You get during Love the your show. haters. I, yeah, thanks for engaging. Thanks for watching the show. Okay, cool. It's lightning round. Yeah, so so ba- back to music. No, we get to set up your questions. Stop oh, really? stealing our podcast. Go, Peter. I understand you have another question. Oh, for really? Brian oh, I'm sorry. I don't. I, I'm, I'm trying to go fast. Um, music is it plays a huge role in the plot, and then you have a great soundtrack. You guys have awesome deep cuts. Titus Andronicus. Yeah, thanks. RC's headrest. Um, that you too as well. I mean, so clearly you've got a budget and you can acquire stuff. What's the song you haven't been able to clear that you want to get in the soundtrack? Zeppelin's hard because um, the the conditions that they have to clear their music seems to be really challenging to overcome. There's like a time limit. You have to send them a bunch of stuff. So huh. there were moments where we wanted to use um, a, Zepp- a Zeppelin song, and it just seemed like the barriers, and then the cost. But we could maybe work out figuring out the cost of it, but it, it seemed very difficult. And we would love to license a Led Zeppelin song. Is there a specific Zeppelin song? Yeah, but I, know, I don't like, it? until we know it works, I don't like talking about it. I would tell you as soon as the microphone's off. Deal. Well, Robert Plant, if you're listening, check out Billions, man. Just, Thank just you. get on it, you know? He's a, a, a very avid Upsell listener, actually. He listens to every episode and writes in, sends us examples. Jimmy Page, of, too. Yeah, they both love it. 
Go, go deeper. <laughs> Name all four members of uh, the original Zeppelin. Um, Give me the last two. Uh, John Bonham? Yes. No. Bass and, player? And... Uh, I don't remember the John Paul name. Jones. Do you have John no? Paul John Bonham Jones. is the drummer. Greg, at John the bass Bonham player. The John Bonham's the drummer. The bass player is John Paul Jones. Greg, at this very moment in your home studio in LA, do you have a Zeppelin vinyl within arm's reach? I I have Led Zeppelin two, but it's in a box right now. Uh, oh yeah, because so, you're moving. Yeah. All right, but I'm you moving. all right? Got but he's got. Yeah, I see yeah. that. No, no, he has one of my yeah. favorite <laughs> albums ever behind him. I'm a Buffalo Springfield fanatic. Oh, yeah. That, the, the, the Retrospective, which is the two albums put together with some other... Tr- retrospective is probably the... If you've never heard Buffalo Springfield, get Buffalo Springfield Retrospective. You know, this is... A, a, it's right behind Greg and the Skype. It's... Uh, this is a band that had in it Neil Young, Stephen Stills, Jim Messina. It, it was a, a super group before there were super groups. And yeah, really they got so much great music. About. Yeah. Sorry, I just saw it when you leaned forward. <laughs> no, no, it's that's no, a really no, big signifier to me. Yes. Like nobody has Buffalo Springfield records. Greg does. Yeah, that's it. awesome. Because yeah. Greg's the best. All right, Greg. All right, Peter. Well, that's from Mr. Soul, which you know is a Neil Young song. It was originally a Buffalo Springfield song. I feel like such a middle-aged man right now, Peter. <laughs> Do you have another question? For I, I, I have another. I have another music old guy question. I love oh. it. Bring it uh, on. Your dad uh, was a huge deal in music business. Still is a big deal in music business. You grew up around oh, music yeah. business. Who who made the biggest impact on you growing up when you got to meet them through your dad? Oh, you mean oh, which which a, star? Which which rock or you know pop he made musician? pop records really? My father he produced a lot of Barbra Streisand albums and Dolly hmm. Parton's like pop music. Yeah. So we didn't. And I didn't get, we didn't live that sort of um, life. Like, my parents were really good about us living on Long Island and not being a showbiz family because they felt like that was really, could so be dangerous. So, not dropping by the house? For, like, no, I met those people. I knew, I knew Barbara Streisand very, very well. We, like, went on, that was the one person. But I, I loved, what my dad would let me do is go to the studio with him a lot during the summer. Uh, I would, so I, we, I never went to a sort of where you'd meet people, parties and all that stuff, but I met uh, all the studio musicians and that was the, there's nothing more fun when you're 14 than being in a recording studio at three in the morning, watching Jeff Baxter lay down a solo on a record or, um, all the guys in Toto were all ba- the biggest backing band <laughs> in California. You know, those yeah. Steve Lugather and Jeff Porcaro yeah. and all that stuff, they were the big backing band. I did not expect to hear a Toto reference today. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I can, yeah. Uh, those guys were great. So I, I didn't get to really meet my own heroes until much later. Good. I just, Dolly Parton. How did you know? I'm Dolly Parton. Yes. Dolly Parton. Anyway, 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 it's fine. Later, but at the time when I met Dolly Parton, it's probably 13. I know where I was when I met her. I remember it. Um, but I knew Here You Come Again and like um, Little Andy. I didn't know why Dolly. I didn't know Jolene. And I didn't know. Um, I, I knew Coat of Many Colors probably. But now if I met Dolly, I would start shaking and I would cry. Right. But I was 13. It, it didn't <laughs> hit me in the same way. I will say that Here You Come Again is a fantastic song. But I also understand what you're saying. It is. And she didn't write yeah, that song, though. That's true. And she's one of the great songwriters who ever lived. My, my father found that song and gave it to her and convinced her to record it. And that was her biggest hit as a, an artist. But, but those were pop records. Yeah. Which even then wasn't my, that wasn't my thing. All right. no, How Michael, do you feel about poptimism? As a as a critical philosophy, I just like that you said that word. That's great. I want the. T-shirt. I don't know what that means. I what does that mean? The opposite Pop- of Bobby Axelrod. Yeah, optimism Pop- is the idea that like pop music also has deep, meaningful musical merit, and we need to sort of meet all of these creations where they're coming from and where they mean to be going, and we should be giving the same level the of kind of. You need to face that for me though, because um, like, who do you? What do you find as? What do you define as pop music? Because like, Lord, some might say that, but when I'm talking about pop music, and I'm talking about where the person didn't write their own song. Oh yeah, no, no. So so as, as me, a, Lord's a not super a genius. music writer and a person who knows very little about the music world, my understanding of poptimism is that it says, like, we need to meet with full critical rigor something like Britney Spears, or not not even Britney Spears, but something like Hilary Duff, like a C-list, not, like, the the artistic form of the multi-person Y'all need to get Chuck Klosterman on here right away. Exactly. That's well, he's, yes. Right away. He's, I think it applies maybe we to should get him on here. auteurs, but I wouldn't apply that to everyone. I don't know. Peter is making this a gesture is a, at me as if he has another question. Lord is. No, no. That yeah. was my, I've got, I'm 
I'm, we're going to do something with Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Can so. I come on your show with Chuck? Yeah. All right. You can watch that. All All right. Chuck was on on the moment my podcast, and it was really early on. We had a really great combo about this kind. So of do a super group podcast yeah, of I love just Chuck. all of. He was us. also in the documentary the David I made on Jimmy love. Connors. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. Um, I have a non-music question. Go. What is the best uh, poker movie that's not Rounders? If you if you love Rounders and you love you want to see more poker it's played, a, that's a, What else do you watch? That is not an easy question to answer. There. I've made such a study. They're all flawed in some way. Not saying ours is flawed too. It's just the best one. But um, I can tell you which ones are terrible. Yes, yep, please start do. there. I don't. I don't. I don't want to do, do you that. Think you about made it? me we'll name quality eats. You made me. You no, made I mean, me say look, that. Cincinnati Kid. There rounders wouldn't exist if not for Cincinnati Kid. A movie that has poker featured that is a huge movie to us is House of Games. The poker scene is inauthentic in a certain way. Even though Mamet was a huge poker player, he needed to do certain things that you can't do because of how it worked. But I mean, if you haven't seen House of Games, let's make this a useful podcast for people. House of Games is an essential movie. When you see it, you'll understand how cons work in tons of different Mamet, movies. Joe Mantegna. That's exactly the one right. that Ricky Jay was a consultant on. And it's uh, Ricky, just like Ricky, and Ricky it's Jay's the whole, in, that, in, it, and it's, in that movie. And he so, and Mamet are best yeah. friends. Ricky J. Consultant on one film that we made too, actually, yeah, and and um, well, he's an amazing guy. We should have a whole I'm obsessed about Ricky with Ricky J. J. Yeah, we gotta too. get Ricky Incredible. J. in here. I would Does literally like fall food? on the ground and die. I'll connect you with I, someone who's close seriously, to him. Right would, at the end of this, I'll give you an email all I address. Want in life. This is the best day of my life. Peter Kafka, you last can't one. top that for no, me, no, no, but maybe our listeners will be excited about whatever you ask. I have last one. You always have to have a Trump question in a podcast, of course, at least in my podcast. Um, Donald Trump and his company has declared bankruptcy six times. Would Bobby Axelrod have done business with him prior to the election? Bobby that's Axelrod. a dumb question, Peter. I think that's a dumb question. I like you. You're a good dude. You're super smart. I'm waiting to hear the answer. <laughs> I don't remember the question. <laughs> Look, I can't stand. I mean, I can't stand Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, but I don't. I really don't generally talk about what the characters would or wouldn't do. I don't want to do that. I think oh, so it guys, officially is a dumb question. I think the guy's yeah. a clown. No, it's a good question. I, I, I think the guy's a, a, I mean, Trump's a clown and Bobby's not a clown. So. Yeah. But he'll take advantage of clowns. I mean, if Trump had public companies, would he Bobby Axelrod short those right. companies? He'd short the crap <laughs> out of them. Oh, oh man. The There's your third season right there. Currency. Just do a fictional What's Trump. the best black and white cookie in, I'm going to ask you guys, what's the best black and white cookie in New York? Avengers. Okay, that's that the answer. German, also, which that, uh, we mentioned, which you mentioned in the show on the, on the east side. Yeah. What which, is it? The the um, that German bakery on the east William, side. William, uh, the east side one, like Greenberg or whatever. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, what is this place? I have to look it up now. No, uh, what what was the what was the other one that you guys Avengers. suggested? Avengers, which is Avengers. mentioned on an episode of the show as if it is closed, and it is not. But it's the inventor of the Brooklyn blackout cake, and it's the place where you can get the best black and white cookie in New York City, but you have to be willing to travel for it. Um, Oh, what's your favorite bagel? I just always ask. I have to know because you guys know. You guys are in it. What's the real favorite bagel? I have a terrible answer for this question, so I'm just. I, I like the black seed bagels. I like Montreal That's style. That's why they're sweet and delicious. Seed, I, just, I, I, yeah. I prefer a smaller bagel. More than absolute. Well, we have to wrap things run. up. We good? We good. I was going to say it was a Shelsky's. Whatever. Shelsky's. Oh. Really? Glazer's Bake Shop. That's what I was looking for, for the uh, black and for white. For the black and white. Okay, you guys well, keep talking. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. me. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Cool. Well, those are some awesome lightning round questions. That was fun. Thanks, Peter Coffey. You can check out his podcast, Recode Media, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I don't know. I feel cool. How do you feel? Yeah. So, so I feel cool, but what I want to know, Brian, when is uh, season three going to come out? Like in the winter, the, the spring? Sometime maybe? in 2018. Showtime hasn't announced it yet, but we are starting to shoot very soon. Cool. Well, this is really fun. I'm such a big fan of what you guys do. I love the site. I've loved it since the beginning. I'm really happy that you exist. Thank I you. really, really am happy that you exist. The feeling is I was mutual. psyched when you guys. Can we shout out to Hillary Dixler? Yes. Oh my God. Please, Hillary Dixler is the best here, person in the world. She's, love she's her. the greatest. I she's think. so good. Hillary Dixler, our eater.com restaurant editor, crushes it on the regular. I think just crushes mm-hmm. it. And her, her um, Snap and Insta games, strong. Everyone follow Hillary Dixler. Very strong. So good. Well, Brian Coppelman, thank you so much for joining us on the Eater Upsell. And if our listeners want to find you, they can obviously watch Billions and look for your fingerprints or check out Rounders on some sort of streaming service. At Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Check out the podcast um, where I don't talk nearly this much because I'm asking the questions. It's at uh, 
uh, iTunes.com slash The Moment. The Moment is one of my very favorites. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with us through all of this. If you have thoughts and feelings about anything that we said today, please drop us a line at upsell at eater.com. And as always, make sure that you are subscribed and give us a five-star rating and tell like your mom and your best friend and your ex-best friend that they should listen to this show because we talk to super cool people like Brian Koppelman. Now we go to the credits. Great. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yay. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener, you. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.